Hey everyone from the Resilient Community, thanks so much for tuning in. Today I have the Deputy Superintendent from the Emergency Management Institute, Michael Sharon. Super excited to, to talk to Michael. We've had a couple of chats before and um, now he's really keen to, to share a bit of information around the upcoming hurricane season and, and how EMI are kind of dealing with the, um, the obvious uh, COVID situation going on right now. So Michael, thanks so much. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Fantastic. So, yeah, I think we're just going to kind of jump straight into it, as I usually do. So um, I think just to get us out the gate, how about we talk about how um, EMI are preparing, you know, your clients and students for, for the upcoming hurricane season with everything going on? Yeah, as you mentioned, it's quite a challenge. Uh, it's a challenge getting everyone ready for hurricane season, even when we don't have a pandemic underway. But this year has been especially difficult mm. because it's it's limited our abilities a little bit. Um, so we're doing a couple things. So first, in advance of the hurricane season, uh, we've, we have some basic kind of training classes that we've been relooking uh, that are normally classroom courses uh, that we're in the process of, of retooling. Um, getting ready to do as, as virtual or online deliveries uh, for some of our state and local customers. Mm. And we've, we've got about a month. Uh, the Pacific hurricane season, of course, of interest to you, starts in May 15th. Um, yep. The Atlantic hurricane season um, for, for a lot of the clients in the United States starts June 1st, with kind of the height yep. of the season actually being later in the summer um, as storms begin to heat up in the, in the Atlantic. Mm. Uh, so we're doing some uh, training, you know, reworking some of our normal training that we would do uh, in a classroom, uh, continuing to, to put out some you know, other other kinds of information and in, in, uh, asking folks to look very uh, keenly at our independent study courses and things like that that they can do from their home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's taking the tools that we would normally use and just uh, adapting, adapting them in a different environment. Yeah, uh, the other thing is that we, we're also trying to emphasize uh, the things that we do normally, the things that we've been doing all along and, and with the pandemic of just basic all hazards emergency management, because those principles don't change. Uh, whether the, it's a, a hurricane that we're preparing for or a pandemic that we're responding to or an earthquake, uh, the fundamentals remain the same. And we're trying to emphasize those as well. Yeah, definitely. And so, uh, you know, other emergency managers um, from kind of the public and private sector, they the type of folks that are um, going through these educational courses that EMI is offering for hurricane season? It's, a, it's an interesting mix. So normally we, we focus on government emergency managers in the United States, uh, but mm-hmm. with everybody being at home, uh, we've had a lot more uh, individuals from outside our normal customer base that are, are participating, mm. particularly in the independent study courses. Um, and so we'll have some limits on how many people we can have in our virtual basically Oh, really? Enter delivery. Uh, we, we normally do about 30 to 40 students at a time, but mm-hmm. we're trying to expand uh, the numbers of those, the number of offerings of those courses uh, mm-hmm. so that we can uh, expand our footprint a little bit. So it's it's been interesting to see the shift in the customer base because also a lot of our normal uh, state and local government customers are still very engaged um, in protecting their communities as a result of the COVID pandemic. Definitely. Yeah. And I know that um, because we work with kind of utility providers and I know that they, uh, yeah, sing praises of um, the, yeah, the government emergency managers because during a hurricane there's a massive uh, collaboration between everyone to try and, and get, uh, yeah, the grid back up after a major hurricane. So, yeah, really interested 
to see if, you know, EMs from like utilities from municipalities or investor owned, if they're kind of going along to these things and getting educated um, on preparation. Yeah, uh, utilities and, and a lot and um, hospitals and, you know, all, all kinds of providers, because uh, as you and I talked about in some of our earlier conversations, we really mm. try to emphasize what we call the whole community in emergency management. That's so, it. Yeah. You know, government, is, government is public safety. Uh, but the phrase that I use a lot to our students when, on, on campus when they had the chance to come visit us in Emmitsburg, Maryland, uh, was that emergency management is a team sport. And it's not just government at all levels, but it's volunteer organizations, it's academia, the private sector, and it's individuals, you know, citizens that are out there every day that, that all contribute to making sure that we have safe and resilient communities and we're ready for whatever disaster may come our way. Definitely. Yeah. And um, that probably brings me to the question, you know, in your experience, I know you've yeah, being being in emergency management for a, a long time. Um, what's the worst hurricane that you experienced, and and why was it the worst for you? I think the worst that I've been involved in, in my career, which really started almost almost in nineteen almost in nineteen ninety two, so Hurricane Andrew and a lot of others. Um, I, I I think it would be tied between Hurricane Katrina. In New Orleans and in Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, both very devastating situations. I think in terms of complexity, Hurricane Maria was more challenging uh, because it came immediately after Hurricane Harvey, which was already impacting Texas, mm -hmm. uh, Hurricane Irma, which had impacted Florida, um, and portions of Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands to, to some extent. Um, mm. And then we so then we have Hurricane Maria. And this particular challenge there uh, is not only the damage, but uh, you're trying to assist an island community uh, with very limited means of, of being able to deliver resources. Uh, everything had to really go in by air or by sea, and airports and uh, seaports uh, were not immediately available. So that slows down our ability to, to be able to get you know, supplies and services and people yeah. and to assist the residents of the Commonwealth, uh, it, not only Puerto Rico, but the United States Virgin Islands as well. Whereas Hurricane Maria, you know, you were in the continental United States and, and you have a number of different ways and it, it was a lot easier to be able to move resources in, although it was a very, very devastating storm in a, in a major metropolitan area. Mm. Probably Maria in terms of complexity, um, in addition to the, to the terrible devastation that we saw on the island and in the United States Virgin mm. Islands, because uh, mm. it made it, it, it that much harder to move things in. Whereas I, I explain to people, it's like trying to push a basketball through a garden hose. Uh, lots of resources that we oh have make available yeah. and, and not a lot of capability to do it. And mm. just it, the island-wide devastation as well. It's, it's just gonna, it has made and, and will continue to make um, restoring Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands uh, a real challenge uh, to, to get them back to some semblance of, of where they were uh, before. Mm. Yeah, certainly. I know both of those those events, I mean, gosh, pretty much every hurricane is is devastating. But but those two in particular, yeah, definitely come a lot come up a lot for us. Um, Katrina, Michael, and uh, Harvey certainly were were some of the the hurricanes that we talk to our clients quite frequently. And and yeah, it's just crazy to to think about. And yeah, the restoration efforts are, are still kind of going on now. So it's um so important that we can do everything possible to, to try and mitigate 
uh, that kind of damage because, yeah, as you know, a lot of damage from these hurricanes is Mother Nature. There's a lot you can't prevent, but there's certainly a lot of, um, you know, things that you can do to try and, and minimise that damage on people's lives and um, and on the, the things that they love and own as well. So, yeah, big... Yeah, big shout out to to you guys for for going through those those kind of hurricanes and and helping out and um to actually switch gears a little bit and talk about what happens in that kind of pre-planning for for hurricane seasons. So what kind of kind of tools and and data do you use to actually uh you know use before during and after a hurricane i know that a few ems use uh hurry back um obviously uh information from noaa and then um maybe some yeah uh internal vendors but but what does your team kind of uh teach as best practice for these tools and data so we a couple of different things so strictly for hurricanes uh we do when there's not a pandemic underway. Uh, <laughs> for, of course, for some of our, for a small number of our coastal communities, usually about 90, 90 folks a year uh, across three courses uh, that we, te- we actually we teach in partnership with the National Hurricane Center in Miami. And at yeah. that course, uh, the fundamental tool that we teach them is called, well, it's, now it's called HVX, uh, which is the success, it's a web-based successor to HuraVac. Uh, mm-hmm. But it gives them not only a, a tool that helps them do some storm tracking, um, it provides them with the opportunity to do some evacuation modeling so that they can look at, they can run a particular storm scenario and determine uh, when they might need to make an evacuation decision for their particular communities. And it, it incorporates past uh, you know, current evacuation models specific to those coastal communities. And then HVX yeah. also ties into uh, the Hurricane Center's not only their forecasting information, uh, storm track and intensity, but also um, their storm surge modeling, uh, which becomes very important because it, it helps us model uh, the impacts of uh, the flooding, particularly in coastal communities. Mm. So that's for hurricanes. But especially in the United States, we think a lot about coastal communities and we prepare for them a lot. Uh, but we also try to emphasize uh, to others um, the, the tools that are available and, and the things that we use every day uh, in terms of flood insurance rate maps, um, and we have mm-hmm. called HAZUS, which is used to to, est- to do loss estimation, because mm-hmm. the number one natural hazard threat in the United States is flooding, and it's a certainly a consequence of hurricanes, and we can mm. see uh, impacts from storms far beyond uh, what takes place and what's inside normal coastal areas. Um, as we saw in Houston after Hurricane Harvey with a significant rainfall that took place, and mm. even going back into the you know, deep reaches of history up where, where I live in, uh, in the mid-Atlantic area of the United States, mm-hmm. uh, Hurricane Agnes, which came through in, in 1972, the main impact, that it was not even really a hurricane by the time it arrived over Maryland and Pennsylvania. I believe it was a tropical depression. But the yeah. flooding from that uh, caused significant uh, damages, as well as more recent storms that we had. And so while we, we emphasize for hurricanes, the coastal communities, we continue to work uh, with communities around the United States to emphasize the, the importance of understanding the flooding risk, uh, be it from a regular rainstorm or certainly from an event like a hurricane or an inla- the inland event of a hurricane, which can cause uh, significant impacts. Because where it, where it can rain, it can flood. Um, and we certainly That's it. All the time uh, inside of there. So we, we offer training in you know, again the loss estimation models, 
and continue to help communities understand how to use and read our, our flood insurance rate maps, which are used um, now, uh, risk modeling and, and electronic mapping, not only to, to make decisions on how they prepare their communities, but to get an idea of where their greatest inland flooding and, and uh, river flooding risk is um, in, in the inland communities as opposed to what we see on the coast. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, as, as you said, it's, it is so important to to be across and, and educated around how, um, yeah, the the NF uh, NFIP kind of works and um, and folks. There's there's a lot of houses and homes and people who should be insured who currently aren't, and that just adds kind of to the the headache and and the burden on the economy when these um, hurricanes inevitably strike. I mean, we're seeing flooding in in places that were never predicted to to flood. Like in some cases, those hazard maps can actually um, potentially underestimate uh, where floods can go just because of um, of climate change and, and the changing environment. And sometimes, yeah, there can be flooding in places where we don't expect. So it's um, incredibly important, regardless of how at risk people think they are, that everyone needs to prepare Right. And as you and I talked about, you know, the flood insurance uh, rate maps that we're we're undertaking a lot of work inside the U.S. to update those. Mm. Some of them are done using much older technology. And uh, we're we're learning a lot of lessons. And in some cases, as flood maps are updated, uh, the risk areas are changing. Some of those are fairly, you know, we're we're done almost manually. But it's still the best source of immediate information, uh, though it's not a perfect source. And we continue to try and modernize and use things like LIDAR. Uh, to help get a better sense of, of terrain, topography, um, and the effects, like you said, is that they come from a, a changing environments as well as, you know, just the, the changes in the built area in a lot of cases. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's it. Um, around that kind of urban uh, development piece, that's exactly right. When you're talking about the topography, a flood's going to, to either bank or move differently, um, yeah, depending on where there's been... Uh, construction and then you have the the changing environment it all kind of comes together um, in a pretty uh, yeah in a, a pretty dynamic way so I mean for for us so hazard maps are certainly something that's that's needed like we we definitely think that um, obviously there's value in hazard mapping to try and do that one in 100 uh, probabilistic modeling and um, there's definitely some technology that's helping make that uh, more dynamic, but the the limitation of hazard mapping is that, you know, you can't, like every storm is different, so hazard maps always have to be a little bit generalized, um, but yeah, LiDAR and, and better topography certainly can help, um, and yeah, I guess that's, our mission is to complement hazard maps, so you know, when we're talking to emergency managers, we're trying to give them four extra days lead time um, on like a block by block basis in terms of how uh, the flood is going to inundate a particular area and um, into what depth as well. So we're looking at extent and depth four days out kind of at that 90% plus accuracy. So I think it's really important that, um, you know, you can have these emergency managers making these plans, um, you know, a significant time in advance because you can't make a, an entire plan in four days, or at least I don't 
I don't know if you can, but having kind of that foundation using the hazard maps to make those kind of plans for hurricane season and then having live dynamic data of how maybe those hazard maps, um, how they're going to change uh, based on what's actually happening um, in terms of, yeah, the rainfall and, and how the rivers are peaking as well. Right, because those things change can change very quickly. Um, exactly. You know, they, the the maps, the flood insurance rate maps talk about a, uh, we call it. Uh, I shouldn't even use the term. My mitigation friends are going to scream. The one hundred <laughs> typical. The typical phrase is the one hundred year flood risk, which means, as, as you yeah. know, a one in one hundred chance uh, in any given year, but it resets every year. Uh, so it actually over the life of a mortgage, uh, a typical mortgage in the United States, the chances if, if you're in a special flood hazard area of being impacted are a heck of a lot higher than just one in 100 as we've seen some areas okay. like that. The other challenge too is, so that models the risk, uh, but what it doesn't, what those don't, you know, given a certain set amount of water, but what it doesn't do is necessarily model um, how fast that water has arrived. So you could have uh, saturated ground um, and, and you know, longer term and maybe uh, protracted days of activity where you have more planning time. Or you could have uh, yeah. a sudden storm that sets up and, and drops a copious amount of rainfall in an area in a very short period yeah. of time, leaving very yeah. little time to prepare. Um, I'm originally got my career in the state of started my career in the state of Maryland and the town of Ellicott City, Maryland, beautiful old uh, mill town. Uh, not too far from Baltimore, had two floods basically almost back to back in, in successive years where that's exactly what happened, that a, that a storm set up over the town and dumped mm -hmm. like six or eight inches of rainfall in an hour. Yeah. Yeah. Devastating um, to the to the, the town itself, because how quickly the water rose, how fast the water uh, coursed through town and the damage mm. that it did um, to the businesses and the homes um, in, in that part of the town. Yeah, definitely. And and that's it. Um, hazard maps are certainly great for looking a few years into the future and um, and modeling that risk, like you're exactly right. But when it comes to actually trying to minimize damage and, and plan effectively in a dynamic situation and scenario, and I'm sure you run a lot of these, um, I think it is like EMI, you guys run kind of like a, an eight-hour training workshop on um, when you're doing scenario-based uh, flood training. So, i.e., if there's X amount of rain in this area um, and the floods are coming up to this level, you know, how do you um, how do you organize that? I'm, I'm pretty sure. Do you run those at all, uh, Michael, or is that um, other people who are? We'll use different kinds of, de depending on the particular simulation, what we're trying to trying to accomplish, uh, different yeah. types. But maybe not so much the models because a lot of my customer base are, are looking at uh, kind of emergency operations and maybe a little more on a hazard mitigation and, you know, a long-term risk. Yeah. But we're actually, we're only one part of the training pipeline. Uh, well, I'm very proud of the work that we do. A lot of great stuff is done out in the communities every day by our National Weather Service, who are the ones that actually develop the forecasts and, and provide the forecast products. Um, and each weather service office has an individual, has a, has a meteorologist who's assigned to do basically yeah. emergency management. And those yeah. folks are called warning coordination meteorologists are out there every day with our state partners and our locals, really teaching them the ins and outs of what a forecast means, what this what this information means when it comes out, um, mm. and those products and assess those products. They've also done a great job um, in the last, with, with the advent of the internet, 
uh, with putting together very short fused uh, hazard analysis briefings to, to tell emergency managers just what so they don't have to wait through forecasts, what they need to know and the, and the weather services best estimate of most probable and then highest end and lowest mm-hmm. end potential consequences. Uh, mm-hmm. When I first started out, we got the weather on a teletype. And they're, you know, was, way. Well, not a, not a teletype like you might see in the movies, but it was basically a satellite yeah. feed to an old dot matrix printer and everything came out text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think okay. probably five years of starting out, we had online access. We could get the forecast ourselves online and now uh, radar products and things like that. I, I have several radar apps that I keep on, on my cell phone and, you know, can, can pull up yeah. my smartphone at any given time and have near real time weather data. So technology has expanded and with it, the sophistication of emergency managers um, mm. And it's changing the role of the weather service to help us now make sense of, of all this information that's at our fingertips that meteorologists are used to looking at, but but helping use that in planning and effectively use that in knowing what to read um, in terms of a response. Um, totally. Yeah. So being able to uh, translate the the data and the models that you're seeing into actual actionable insights um, for the emergency managers as well. Indeed. And a lot of also uh, the some of the best information that even the Weather Service continues to get are through what are known as cooperative observers, um, as well as a program of volunteers called Skywarn, where Weather Service, you know, radar and other things doesn't give you absolutely every information across every inch of a forecast area. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a lot of volunteers and specially trained affiliates called the cooperative observers uh, that will report That's to the cool Weather name. Service. <laughs> yeah, rainfall. Uh, amounts, things like that, reports of yeah. flooding, um, you know, hail conditions like that, that helps the weather service take what they're looking at on a weather radar and they're modeling and translate it into ground truth of what's happening out on the ground, of what is actually taking place so, so that they can map that to consequences. Radar's great yeah, right. and the models are great, but they only they only take you so far and they're not, they're not perfect. Yeah, that's, I mean, they are models at the end of the day. You can get, yeah, highly precise models um, like ours, but yeah, at the end of the day, it it is, it is a model. Um, it's not a, a full crystal ball, but it definitely gives us more data to work on versus, um, yeah, like more digestible uh, insights, I think. But it ultimately comes down to the decision maker um, on the ground of emergency management. Like they're responsible for kind of taking all this information and data and and from other people and from, from data sources uh, to be, yeah, able to handle an emergency. It's a super, super complex um, kind of way of, of doing things. And yeah, I have massive appreciation for emergency managers because of how complex um, and how rapid those decisions have to be made um, in a time of crisis. So it's, uh, yeah, it's incredible. And, and probably one last question for you, Michael. So how do you think we're going to go in terms of yeah, approaching the Pacific and Atlantic hurricane season with these, uh, obviously, the added complexity of, of COVID. How do you think we're going to fare in terms of um, evacuation and, and trying to get people uh, yeah, still connected within their communities? I think, that, you know, evacuation and sheltering are going to be, I think, two of the largest challenges We've managed to adapt as an emergency management community, managed to adapt very well in doing emergency operations and kind of EOC operations in a virtual environment. Um, as you and I have talked about before, uh, I'm, I'm working periodic shifts in the National Response Coordination Center, 
And probably 50 to 60% of that normal workforce is now being done virtually and using collaboration tools and, and pushing the envelope. The mm. challenge that we, one of the many challenges we see is going to be first and foremost, if we have to evacuate citizens, our model would normally be doing congregate care or, ma- or mass care and doing sheltering in a way that understands uh, the challenges that we have out there, uh, provides the best possible social distancing that we can. Uh, while still pr- uh, providing um, a safe and secure environment for people that have to leave their homes. It's it's going to be very difficult because on a good day, we know we never have enough uh, shelter spaces in any given jurisdiction to support exactly. the, yeah. the community. And so now you can consider that that capacity has probably been cut um, at mm. least in half. Um, mm. It's available. And there are limits on the number of responders who may be available uh, because of concerns about uh, themselves or their, their family being exposed to the virus. So there's a very active effort uh, underway within FEMA right now where we're, we're putting together some of our best minds and talking to our state and local partners uh, to come up with some guidance uh, for the communities on things that they need to be aware of um, and considerations that they uh, need to have in mind as they get ready for hurricane season. Uh, same thing will take place when we start, if we start talking about after the disaster, uh, what's a safe environment look like for uh, our response teams and for our mm. assessments to go out and provide services to to a community. So it's it's certainly a challenge. And we know, especially the social distancing uh, parts uh, involved in COVID make things very challenging right now. But not to, you know, paint too rosy a picture on it, but in many ways, uh, we're very, it, the, the nature of the profession is being very adaptable and being very resilient. And mm. we've already been, we've already shown in the last six to seven weeks uh, what we can do um, with, you know, with challenges, almost unknown challenges and, and learning things on the fly. And I'm yeah. confident that, you know, our, our emergency management system and our professional emergency managers in government and with our whole community partners are flexible and adaptable, and while it won't be easy, that we have a, a solid foundation and we'll be able to um, uh, respond and address the needs of communities and survivors. We've already had a little bit of a test. We had some tornadoes in, in the southern United States uh, last week, and um, you know the, the states were able to go in, respond, you know, not a full-blown hurricane, but it was kind of our first test of, of how we might handle uh, a smaller natural disaster uh, yeah. environment. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm excited to, to kind of see, yeah, exactly. Like, what can we do? What's our capability? How can we come together as a community? I mean, we've already seen a lot of, um, you know, organizations and and communities band together through this time. So, um, yeah, I'm definitely interested to catch, catch you again, um, kind of towards the end of hurricane season and, and see how you went. But, I am, yeah, I'm definitely confident in in FEMA and EMI and in our um, government EMs to, to handle that. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for your time, Michael. I really appreciate it. If you want to say anything, any anything at the end of this, like how to get in contact with EMI or anything like that, please go ahead if there's any plugs you want to make. Sure. I, I just wish uh, everyone to, to stay safe out there. <clears throat> Take care of yourselves and your families. Be sure to wash your hands often um, and we are available uh, to everyone if, uh, hopefully you have a worldwide audience Caitlin uh, through our yeah. independent study program in the Emergency Management Institute which uh, folks can access by going to https training.fema.gov 
front slash is like independent study uh we are making updates we just released a couple of courses specifically about hazard mitigation and coming right. very soon an updated course on the latest and greatest of the national response framework and even more so while on my campus is currently uh, not we're not doing training on our campus right now uh, we're expanding our capability for virtual deliveries and our independent study program is open for business and, and ready to assist any member of the whole community uh, emergency management family who's looking for training or professional development. Amazing. Thank you so much, Michael. That's great. I'll definitely put that link um, in kind of the, the description for everyone to access. And yeah, certainly check it out. I know I will be. So thank you so much again, Michael, and um, best of luck with uh, the upcoming season. Thank you. You too. Thank you.